welcome to Pod Vacard. I'm Andrea Gazetta. I'm Katrina Davis. And I'm Jordan Lee Williams. Bow, 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 bow. <laughs> we <laughs> what's what are we talking about today oh yeah i guess i should have taken the lead on that oh my god i'm so tired <laughs> um today <laughs> we are gonna talk about two very amazing women uh we're gonna talk about anna bosch and johanna van gogh bonger Whoa, um i looked up that's a bunger of a name how to say Oh, yeah, no, because she's also she's from Amsterdam. So I was like, is her last name Boner? Because I'm really <laughs> unsure. <laughs> Here's hoping like, there is there is a chance that she is Johanna Van Gogh Boner. And I don't know. Uh, Van, Gogh, Van Gogh Boner just sounds like. I don't know. It sounds, it sounds like, like a frat me. bit or something. <laughs> It sounds like a frat guy dressing up as Van Gogh for Halloween somehow. Like he was like, I'm Van Gogh. But he's doing the dick in the box too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like a starry night box. Oh my gosh. I was just about to say instead of the envelope his ear was in, it's just his dick. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. <laughs> oh no. Uh, so yeah, this one, it is, um, an episode that is pretty near and dear to my heart, uh, because A, I love Van Gogh and B, I hate that women get left out of the history books. And so I want to talk about these two women who in the last few years have really been getting a lot more recognition for the roles that they played in his life. We love to see it. Nice. Absolutely. So I'll do sources first. Um, and the thing that brought this to my attention is an amazing show called Raiders of the Lost Art. And it is one of my favorite television shows ever. Um, I can't find it anywhere. Netflix took it off, so it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I've been trying to rewatch it. Does the host dress up like Indiana Jones to cover the episodes? <laughs> Because if you're going to uh, go strong with not. a pun like There's, that. Oh, you'd think. It's also no one believes me that the show exists. They're like, <laughs> I think you watched Raiders of the Lost Ark and got very confused. Like, <laughs> but I promise. No one it is would a... make that level of a pun mistake. <laughs> I know what I watched. Don't you gaslight my Netflix queue. It was right. real, damn it's... it. <laughs> it's such a good show too they have an incredible episode about Fabergé eggs anyway um the episode <laughs> is <laughs> that was a very me sentence I was about to say I loved how genuine that was oh you guys the episode on Fabergé eggs don't even get me started like just genuinely meaning that as an aside is Jordan as hell <laughs> they have a great episode on it's Fabergé eggs I feel it's like it's so cool and it's so beautiful. There could <laughs> oh, never mind. My mind is gross. Um, <laughs> what? What were you thinking about, Pervo? But now I want to hear. I'm just thinking yeah, of let's the hear Gwyneth it. Paltrow eggs that they put in your vagina to like soak oh, it. Oh, the yoni eggs. Boo. <laughs> 
But also, if those eggs were that fancy, they would at least be worth that amount of money. Right. Like that if makes someone, sense. If, if I heard how much those eggs were and then I, saw, I was like, oh, they're ornate and painted by hand. I would be like, I get it. <laughs> I'm definitely going to do an episode on Fabergé eggs now, though, because they're so exciting and there's only like a hundred that exist. So I can't. Talk I'm so excited for that. Anyway, the sources. Sources for my episode. Uh, it's Raiders of the Lost Art, season one, episode three. That episode is called Van Gogh's Guardian. Um, I got a lot of information from an article called The Woman Who Made Vincent Famous from the Van Gogh Museum. Um, I got a lot of information from AnnaBosch.com and... I read some of Johanna's diaries, diary entries. They've been trying to kind of rectify the fact that she got completely left out of the story. And so now her diaries, her family has finally made them public. Um, And then there's also a biography that I think the book came out already or they're working on it. I I didn't read it. I just know that I got a lot of my information from uh, Raiders of the Lost Art. So, <laughs> so Van Gogh, Vincent Van Gogh is one of those people who the narrative around him has kind of become not only accepted as fact, absolutely, but also the stereotypical if you tell your parents that you want to go into the arts, they just tell you about Vincent Van Gogh. Like, <laughs> penniless. His brother had to take care of him. He never sold a piece of art in his entire life. Uh, he mm. only became famous after he died. But I want to talk about two of those things because this episode isn't about Vincent. And I don't know that we're going to do an episode about Vincent. We might do one about UKO, uh, the floating world prints that inspired his style. But this is about two points on the trajectory of Van Gogh. Um, The first one, that he never sold a painting in his lifetime. Because that's not true. (laughs) Oh. Did you guys know that he, he did sell... A single painting. Okay, that's life. what I thought. I didn't know. I knew he was sad, but I didn't realize that he was used as the like quintessential cautionary tale. <laughs> like I was told starving artist 100%, but never with like a specific example. Is he the beginning of that? He's the beginning. He's like, if you look at all of the kind of societal, oh, you can't go into the arts because you won't make any money and you're just going to be sad and alone and nobody makes it until they're dead and yada, yada. It's just Vincent Van Gogh's life story. (laughs) Oh my gosh, Vincent. (laughs) But it, which is fully messed it up for everyone. Absolutely. But it's like, when you think about it, like that's fully bizarre when you think about like Da Vinci and Michelangelo were essentially like for a long time, art was a trade and it was a well-paid craft, you know, like it was something historically that has been, a lucrative craft oh absolutely and the the patronage alone like it used to be that you could have someone could hire you and you could just 
live at their house and paint their stuff. And, you know, it's it's interesting to think about a time when people loved and needed and appreciated art that much that they were needed someone around to make (laughs) art. That's an interesting right? thought, yeah. like concept. Yeah. Well, in a way, artists were part of the historian. Like, if you're a king mm. and you want to be like, hey, I'm the greatest king and I'm so good at being this king, like, you need a dude to paint you so that you can, like, send your being portrait off to someone. Yeah, it's like it's kind of like you're, like, the propaganda master in a way. Artists were the original picks or it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> they absolutely were they absolutely were and if you yeah. if you were uh king louis designing your own fancy little shoes and you wanted to show those off <laughs> your fancy yeah. little then <laughs> work it king your fancy little shoes i love his um, shoes so fab they're so good uh but uh so Van Gogh did sell one painting during his lifetime, which doesn't fit into the neat narrative, uh, you know, because you can say, oh, well, he never sold. He didn't gain recognition until after he died. He never sold anything while he was alive. Well, except for this one. So I I kind of understand why people generally leave it out is because you never want your neat narrative to need a caveat, essentially. Mm -hmm. But the woman who bought this painting, because it was a woman is fascinating she is so fucking cool um so anna bosch she bought the red vineyard at arles um and i think i read somewhere that she bought it for like ten dollars which i didn't do the inflation i just love the idea of that i mean that's like a solid that's amount some antiques road show shit yeah <laughs> <laughs> i got it for ten dollars and it's like bring <laughs> original van gogh <laughs> sorry i watch a lot of antiques road show <laughs> amazing <laughs> um so anna bosch was a painter herself and she was a patron of young artists she wanted to support young artists and she created a collection of work that is incredible and it does include a Van Gogh that she bought, you know, it's, uh, but part of what is so interesting about her. So she's a Belgian artist and she is the first Belgian artist to paint plein air. Oh, and wow. Why that is fascinating to me is because you have, so plein air was, championed by the impressionists and van gogh also painted plein air but uh if you hear plein air think monet renoir uh, those are the the kind of what does that mean exactly like plein air like what Mm -hmm. is the definition of that that's just like you paint outside right yes so plein air it translates literally to outdoors um and the reason that this is such an almost an exhilarating to me it's exhilarating i think it's incredible but Part of why this is such an extraordinary invention is that up until this point, which is the 1800s, artists had to make their own paint. So you can't go out, you can't bring your linseed oil and all of your pigments and mix paint outside. It just doesn't make any sense. So, because it'll like blow around away. This time, because it's like 
powder. So it'll just like get fucking everywhere. Yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> and not only that, but it's it's such a time consuming. I don't know if you guys have ever made your own paint. I have. I have. It takes a long time. It's super like, annoying. Really? Yeah, because you have to mix it all and make sure that it's the correct consistency and that you're adding and it's it's a chemical reaction that you're creating. So you have to make mm. sure that you're not adding too much linseed oil or adding too much of your um God, it's been a while since I made Is paint. Is it the binder? It so it takes yeah, binder. It takes a while. It does. And around this time, pre-mixed paint that came in a tube becomes possible it starts to be mass produced you can buy it and now you can take your paint and you don't have to make it yourself and you can just go and sit in a field and paint and you've got all these colors that are already set up uh and so that is how plein air became possible and why it was so revolutionary because up until this point you as an artist if you wanted to do a landscape you would go out and you would make your sketches and you'd look at it and you go okay so you know I want to put the tree here and there's a lake and this is where I'm going to put a house and oh I like the style of this and then you would go back to your studio and you would mix all your paint and you would paint from memory and with Mm -hmm. plein air and also these explorations into the way that the eye actually sees and how you process that information brings out the impressionists because now they can go and sit and Monet can sit there with his little pulley system and go okay the light is kind of hitting here and I want to exactly get the impression of what the light does (laughs) well and if you take your glasses off it looks the same so like you can really capture the colors you know what Did I mean? You say like if you a, take your glasses off? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you're doing impressionism, okay. My eyesight's super bad, so yeah. If I well, if I take so my glasses off, like, with... it feels like the same. Andrea just made every listener blind for that. So, <laughs> you know how like when your eyes don't work and you just don't have glasses on. I was like, are there impressionist glasses? What is she talking about? Well, like, okay. Isn't there I a theory it, that like it. Monet had bad eyesight and that's part of the reason that his oh. his subjects aren't painted in like a high detail, but that the color is so spot on? Uh, mm. I think that was Renoir. Oh, my bad. I'm sorry. Yeah, so with Renoir, he had cataracts. Um, And I think Monet, much later in life, had severe cataracts as well. But um, part of what's going on with the Impressionists is not so much that their eyesight is bad. It's more that there is all of this research that starts coming out. The scientific community at the time is really starting to explore why we see and how our eyes work. And Mm. how our brain processes that information. So the Impressionists wanted to explore this idea of how your brain can take something that doesn't look photorealistic, process Mm -hmm. it, and make it into an image. Oh, Um, wow. 
Surratt is another impressionist, but he did pointillism. And so he was exploring the ways in which your brain will combine close colors. So if you have two dots of color that are very close together, your brain isn't going to mm-hmm. see that as two separate dots unless you're very, very close. Once you step back, it's going to combine blend and it. blend. Like the OG pixel art. Yes. Um, so I just, I think that Anna Bush and her paintings are beautiful. She really did. It It almost has a, um, like a sublime element to it. I just really love her work. Oh, so she was older than Van Gogh and was like looking at, younger artists and what they were doing at the time and kind of like seeing like what are you young whippersnappers up to yes she wasn't it wasn't like she was a grandmother at this point but she was an established artist she came from a family of um of artists art dealers um and so she she was also well to do she was uh rich she could afford to be a patron of the arts and so she wanted Mm -hmm. to support young artists and the people that were coming up um i didn't look at how much older than van gogh she was but i know that at this point even if she wasn't older than him she was more established yeah right and i was also just thinking about artists and wondering what the community was like then and if people were actively, you know, looking at what other people were doing in that way. and Oh, yes, definitely. So Van Gogh, he paints mostly in Paris. He is not from France. He's uh, from Amsterdam. Um, but he is he moves to Paris with the rest of the Art Nouveau crowd. So it's all okay. of these. It's this group of people who are seeing the UKO paintings, these Japanese floating world prints, they're coming out of Japan and they're seeing this new style to them, which it had been around for like 400 years at that point, but Japan had been isolated. They had no contact. And then uh, I think it was England went in and was like, you're trading with us fuckers and forced them to open (laughs) trade. So now all of these prints come out. And it is completely different from anything that these European artists have ever seen. Because instead of it just being like a portrait and it's very, you know, you can clearly see exactly what the main focus is. The floating world prints are more about just kind of the general, like it's less about a single person in space and it is more about a scene. Uh, but you also have elements to the design. Uh, there's a beautiful print of a tree. And one of the tree branches just cuts right through the middle, right in the foreground, right in front of the viewer. So instead of just, oh, there's a pretty tree. It's like, oh, there is like a very diagonal and it's it's right in your face but you can also see around into the background where the rest of these trees are um it's where in art nouveau you get toulouse lautrec and his floating uh lamps 
and just the style of putting people not quite in a, a, a physical space that makes sense, but more of just you're creating a physical space within the, the painting. Mm. I tried to look up you, Kyo, while you were talking, but I don't know how to spell it, and it's just bringing up Yu-Gi-Oh. So <laughs> we'll put some of it in the chat. Here, <laughs> let me. I'll pause for a second and I'll pull it up because I I have some of the. <laughs> so this, this is UKO. Oh. Um, just to give you guys an idea. So the one that we're looking at is yes. Sudden Shower, and I will have that on the Instagram account. But it's this That's this so way of kind of cutting through the image, um, and then also these elements of writing. Having mm-hmm. the the writing, having the author's name, having kind of um, if you look at kind of the the bridge scenes, um, but you've got a lot of writing, you've got a lot of just like it's not completely perfectly in perspective um, because these mm-hmm. people would not be larger than these people. These like the the perspective is not exactly how things would look. And then if you <laughs> look at Toulouse Lautrec, I don't know how to spell his name. Um, you can see the elements within his work that really. Uh, oh yeah, I know this guy. Like not yeah. specifically, but I've seen this person's work. Okay, so but you Lautrec can see like, like in this one. Oh, I I was just saying like. When Latrec and Muka start like being influenced by these, they're still taking sort of a European approach where the figure takes center mm-hmm. stage, even yes. though the yes. figure is still in the world, the figure is still the focal point. Whereas in the Japanese mm-hmm. style artwork, generally the landscape is like sort of yes. the larger focus and the people are sort of like are within it. Yeah. So it's like still a different yeah. vibe, mm-hmm. but they're you can it's clear that they're like melding those two together, which is really interesting. Yes. And it looks like well, and going from what Jordan said, it just adds an added layer of people being like, Oh wow, like this new art is amazing and then being like, Yeah, we didn't really have a choice. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> she was talking about them being forced to trade. No, they were forced to trade. It was uh it it the historical context is horrifying. Um yeah, like they're like we love your art and they're like, "Oh great, please don't hurt me." <laughs> yeah, Britain pretty much just like strong arm them, right? Like between Britain yes. and Russia. Yes. And they forced them to open up trade with them. Um so this one from Latrec, you can see the the UK, the UKOA style here with this uh, double base neck popping right through the center, like right mm-hmm. in front of where the viewer is standing. Um, if you can see these lanterns here for his Moulin Rouge poster, those are lanterns. It's That's it, what I was just about to okay. say. It, yeah. Even what Andrea was saying about the person being the focal point, they already lend themselves to advertisements. Yes. No. And so what happens with the Art Nouveau movement, because that is there is such a strong art community at this point and there it kind of changes per uh, iteration of what art becomes. But at this point, it's in France and it's specifically in Paris and it's specifically in this district 
of cafes and dance houses. Um, so you get all of these Art Nouveau artists, Toulouse-Lautrec, um, to a certain extent Van Gogh, but he is still involved in this community. He's just still an outsider, even within this community mm. that's built up. Um, mm. Gauguin really was involved. Who was? Gauguin. Oh, yeah. So, because, like, Van Gogh is, like, at a weird place where he's, like, not really, uh, like, Impressionism, and he's not really, you know what I mean? Like, he's kind of in between yeah. these movements. I'm in between movements right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, just think about how isolating. You have these these very strong and breakthrough art movements happening so you've got art nouveau that's happening in the specific district in paris and you've got the impressionists who are all kind of working within the same world and then vincent is just kind of by himself he's he's desperately trying to be friends with people like gogan um and he just keeps getting rejected and rejected and rejected by the establishment by personal connections um, the only person that really is unconditionally supportive of him is Teo, his brother, and then Johanna, 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 um, his sister-in-law. So Teo's wife. Aww. And I just, this story is so soft to me because, and not softly, it's just, it's so tender. Tender, I think, is the word because mm-hmm. the story that we're going to talk about with Johanna is that the devotion and the kindness that she shows Vincent is, I think, the most pure expression of love. Oh. <laughs> I mean, you definitely, everything that you're saying is relatable in a way that like, I think at this point we've all at some point been with or needed that level of support from a partner where Mm. you're like, here's the thing with my sibling and you just (laughs) like then you're automatically vying for that person. First off, I'm normally dating the per- the sibling that would be talked about this way. But <laughs> if I weren't, the idea of like that person, you also, um, the once you're, like you said, a part of that family, you learn to extra root for this person too. That like you see does something worthwhile, but you also see like, dude, he can just never catch a break. There's always something like that kind of person. So I think that once we get into the actual story, it's going to, it's really going to solidify what an incredible woman she was. Um, mm. I think it's, yeah, she's, I've spent a lot of time crying about this lady because I just think she's amazing. Um, and so, and I'm going to try to not cry, but I do think that I was about is... to say surprise Jordan <laughs> cried. <laughs> Jordan's heart is just a tiny little dove that flutters in her chest and then just like <laughs> wilts at will. <laughs> oh yeah, so it just funny. falls. Um, yeah. It's like, or it's like one of those little fainting goats. <laughs> That's it absolutely what it is. It is constantly <laughs> stiffening its legs and falling over. Too much. 
and then it just like falls to one side. Uh, we love you, Goat Heart. Oh, Goat Heart. <laughs> yeah, and sorry to ramble about Van Gogh. I wasn't planning on talking about him or his style or the the art, but I just no. felt like it came up. It's a foundation, and it does have to do with. I feel like his backstory explains why at least one of these women is like mad invested. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um. So Johanna is such an interesting person, and I just okay. I mean, she's she is brilliant. Um. So she's born October fourth, eighteen sixty two. Um, she is allowed to continue her schooling and gets the equivalent of a college education, um, which for the time, that's incredible. Yeah. Not very common. Um, and especially in a family of seven children. So she's also the fifth of seven children. So the expectation of her, taking care of her younger siblings should, would have still been there, but she continued school um, and she earned, again, the equivalent of a college degree uh, in English. So she starts teaching at a girl's school. She um, is just a, a smart, everyone has, everyone described her as lively, as sweet, as tender. It's, it's very, she's, she is a Jane Austen character. The more I've read about this woman, the more I'm like, okay, so you're just living in Pride and Prejudice. All right, let's do this. Mr. Dawson? As Andrea audibly gasped. <laughs> she just died a little bit. That was so funny. Oh my gosh, my dream. Just what I've always wanted. <laughs> So one of her brothers introduces her while she's visiting to Theo Van Gogh. Uh, and they, I guess, hang out. I don't really know. Like, there's not a lot of, I didn't do too much of a deep dive into her diaries for this. But a year goes by. She goes back. She's she's living in Amsterdam at the time. A year goes by and Theo goes and travels to find her goes to her and says i love you i want to marry you and wow. by all accounts wait, how did he find out that she existed her brother teo and her brother ran in the same circles see um, this got it what they don't tell you is that teo actually sent her three wyd question mark texts before <laughs> traveling over there but she didn't respond so he had to like make a show of it you know <laughs> oh oh it gets so this is why i'm like oh jane austen okay so he goes to amsterdam tells her after a year they that the, they have not seen each other that he is in love with her. He wants to marry her. And by all accounts, everyone around her was like, she was very annoyed and she told him no. <laughs> so that would funny. fully be my response. I'm like, get out of here. You don't even, you don't even know you're in love. You don't know what the fuck you like. You don't even know me. Get out of here with that bullshit. Yeah. No, she was just like, you don't, why she, because the quote I found was that she was annoyed that he was in love with her. 
I love, but I, okay. I do understand the idea of being like, you came all like the, like you said of this very intelligent woman being like, you were so, I would be so skeptical of someone that was like, oh, you, what heard or saw of me have not (laughs) spoken to me directly and developed this entire infatuation and we've never met. Like, I don't believe you. I do think that they have met. (laughs) They've met once. So she had been, she had been visiting. Even even then it's like, yeah, you're crazy. Yeah. It's been a year. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So she tells him no, this it's the funniest thing i i love that shit i eat it up but they do end up (laughs) they do end up getting married um i don't know what he did to convince her how long after do you know i don't know it's actually i think i might be able to find it um because it was i was laughing too hard about the how many of (laughs) you guys have ever turned down a marriage proposal i have Uh, i have i think that i aggressively let people know how much I would not like you'd have to (laughs) have some sort of like emotional blindness to not know that I wouldn't want to marry you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I don't think I've ever (laughs) led anyone to believe that they could when they definitely shouldn't. You know what I mean? I've never, I didn't turn down a marriage proposal, but I did like accept one that I was like, but we're on the rocks right now. You know what I mean? Like I was like, I don't know. And then we broke up later. But I have also been asked out and laughed at them. So, like, I vibe with Anna right now. Like, uh, oh, yeah, I, I did that. But it was because I thought the person was fucking with me. So I did it also as a defense that, like, he was trying to make fun of me in front of someone else and, like, oh. fake ass me out. So he was like, oh, we should go out. And I was like, fuck you. Cause I thought he was just like joking around with me in front of our friend. And he was like, no, I meant that. And I was like, oh, (laughs) but also why would you do that in front of our friend? Like, I definitely thought you were joke. Why would I think that was serious? This is what? No, it was funny. Um, I felt mean, but I didn't mean to. (laughs) So she accepted his proposal a year later. So oh, they so meet. Wow. A year later, he goes and finds her. And then a year after that, they get married. Did he like hang out with her at the time to like, con- like be like, let's kind of date or whatever? I don't know. It's I again, I didn't because uh, I didn't buy her diary. So, <laughs> well, well, like you said, Jordan, same social circle. Maybe they just like continued to run into each other with more intent over the next year. This is like when Harry met Sally. Teo was friends with her brother. So the connection is right. not so far removed that it doesn't make sense. Um, but they get married in 1889. They have a two-year-old or they have a two-year-old son. They have a son uh, and they name him Vincent. No, after Teo's brother, who Teo is fully, fully uh, taken care of. He is sending Vincent money. He's helping him um, because Vincent is in and out of mental institutions. Um, He's Teo is buying him art supplies um, and they're also keeping up an insane amount of correspondence. They 
write letters to each other almost every single day. Teo is very sentimental, so he saves all of these letters. Vincent uh, doesn't, so we don't have any of uh, Teo's letters. Teo's responses, which I'm sure are <laughs> heartfelt, and Vincent's are like sad as hell. Is Teo the older brother? Teo is the younger brother. But Vincent, younger. Yeah, that's what I yeah. thought, because Vincent is first like surviving or whatever. Yeah, and and Vincent is also severely mentally unwell. And so Teo is just mm -hmm. completely supporting his brother, uh, completely devoted to his brother, and yeah. really... Uh, so when Vincent dies, Teo is destroyed. Uh, he tries to... He starts collecting Vincent's art. So he gets pieces from vincent's collection to set up uh, a show of vincent's work because he wants teo wants vincent to be recognized for the Aww. genius that he has and six months later after vincent's death teo also dies so oh, wow we are now in 19 or sorry 19 <laughs> No, we're not. Yeah, I think even you said 1989 part. earlier, and I was like, they oh. did not get married in 1989. But <laughs> no, I they got married in 1889. I just imagine Teo and Anna in like, who's the boss? Um, <laughs> no, so 1889 oh, is did, when they get married. What did Teo pass away from? Do you know? A I don't. Heart? I didn't. Probably. No, I, I That's think it so was just sad. general 1800s disease. Um, right. Right. Like, what did he die from? Being 35 in the 1800s? It's just when you die. It's fine. 1800s disease. I just. I can't. Oh, oh God. God. I'm so sad I looked this up. He died of syphilis. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Christ on a. Bike. what a bummer that fucking sucks dude <laughs> wait van gogh or teo 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 van that means when vincent passed away he could barely even wipe his nose while he cried uh he might not <laughs> have had a nose off. at the time yeah exactly <laughs> uh vincent died of suicide which uh yeah yeah, and then six months later, I'm so mad I looked up what Teo died of. I did not want that <laughs> in my heart. Uh, so Teo dies of syphilis. Um, Teo died of getting it in. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, which, I mean, like, that's a super common. At the time, right. that is probably. Yeah, exactly. Who didn't have syphilis at the time? Like, are you kidding me? Um, People were, like, knocking back mercury just to, like, try to stave off a touch of the sif oh god yeah oh they were a doing touch uh, of the sif was... <laughs> <Who's> <laughs> everyone had it everyone did <laughs> and they didn't they didn't really understand how to treat it and so mm -hmm. they were doing it it was the mercury but they were also doing uh they were doing mercury vapor as a treatment so you basically sit in a room and they fill it with mercury vapor gas yes yeah, like a mercury dehumidifier yes 
Oh, God. Oh, my gosh. Just okay. Yeah. So, just being like, I don't know if this is opening up my sinuses, but I'm going to have a great glow after this <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> like, no. So, Teo dies in. 1891 and the math on that dear listener is that johanna i figured out it is johanna because she goes by joe a lot uh johanna and teo have been married for two years when he oh my god so that is not a long time (laughs) No, but also, like you said, 1800s timeline, like they would have had to have fallen in love when they were like 17 to get any (laughs) kind of decent time together. (laughs) That's why he was being so weird. That's why he came all the way to Amsterdam. He was like, we do not have a lot of time. My my dick is killing me. (laughs) (laughs) It's about to fall off. Get it while you want it. (laughs) Oh, God. This shit's about to look rough. Trust me, we should fall in love sooner rather than later. (laughs) This is the part of the story that really, I think, shows what an incredible woman Johanna is. Because she's been married to this man for two years. Okay? When he dies. She's known Vincent for a year and a half. Like, their marriage. He died six months before Teo. When... Teo dies, she devotes herself to Vincent. She spends the rest of her life working to make his name known. And not only is this such a story of love and devotion, she is brilliant. She is strategic and she is the only reason that we know who Vincent Van Gogh is. And that's not an exaggeration. If it had not been for her, he would have been lost to history. Mm. So when Teo dies and he, Teo had been working on getting uh, this show set up to show off Vincent's work and try to get his name out there. So now she has a baby, a dead husband and 200 paintings in a small Paris apartment. Oh, and she God. is by herself. And syphilis, yeah. probably. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, yeah. She is told by so many people, by Teo's former co-workers, by people around her in her life. They're telling her, just get rid of the paintings. Get rid of them. You don't need mm-hmm. them. They're just going to weigh you down. Sell them as cheap as you can. Get them out of here. But she takes her promise to Teo that she would take care of Vincent and take care of his memory Mm -hmm. so seriously that she packs up crates and crates and crates of Vincent's paintings and then moves back to the Netherlands. So she's she's from Amsterdam. Now she moves from Paris back to the Netherlands and brings all of Vincent's work with her. If you've ever moved your studio, like that is so expensive. It sucks. It takes 200 so paintings. And they're That's on just what was too. in the apartment. Yeah, so they're super mm. like canvas is like a very fragile thing. I mean, you can take them off the stretchers and roll them up. I don't know if she did that, but it's like 
200 paintings it's just so much space and they're you need to pack them yeah how are they moving art in the 1800s it's in crates and i also we keep saying 200 that's just what was in her apartment that wasn't what was in vincent's studio which she also packs up and brings oh my god wow because also wait could she do this because she had money from being so established herself did she rent a ship how did this happen (laughs) or did she put them all on a train like what's happening they probably got put on a train because paris to Uh amsterdam there is a train that goes from paris to amsterdam uh it is what's the how far away is that because it's not amsterdam is not uh from paris like you don't have to go over the sea yeah i'm not good with geography i was like so what is she like sailing the ocean blue with this what's going on i don't know (laughs) 508 kilometers so and that's she goes to uh Busam, which is not it's near Amsterdam or it's in the Netherlands but she's not in mm. Amsterdam proper so she brings everything with her and then she starts to get to work on getting Vincent recognized so she starts setting up public shows and these sale exhibitions and then she starts making friends and connections within the art world. Um, and she becomes friends with members of a magazine called The New Guide, who they were, that was all about art in the Netherlands during this time. Um, and despite the fact that she is a woman who is not trained in art sales or as an art critic, And despite the fact that most people who meet her are so condescending to her of this fact, because she is a woman who is now breaking into the art scene with an outsider artist, which is unusual. Um, And so she's just constantly condescended to told that she should just get rid of Vincent's work. But she persists and is brilliant about it she starts making sales to public collections and that's kind of her main goal at the time is that she wants Vincent's work in public collections because then more eyes will be on it which is such a smart smart. yeah yeah because then people are like oh the 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 power of museums and the power of public collections to lend legitimacy to artists cannot be overestimated. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So in 1905, she sets up the largest retrospective of Vincent's work. She gets over 480 pieces of his work and has this show And at the same time, she is working, she starts working on translating the letters from Vincent and Teo. So she's the reason that we have those letters as well is because she, again, is looking at these letters and she, she explained it as a way she got to be closer to her husband because he loved Vincent so much. And she Aww. also got to continue the work 
that she had made her life's goal to bring Vincent to the forefront, um, which is really beautiful. And so she she starts translating and organizing these letters uh, and she publishes that one in 1914. So you have this huge retrospective and then nine years later, the book comes out. So now you've got so much public interest and these things are just starting to compound on each other and starting to compound on each other where she is really keeping his name in the public. She is really people are interested and it really is everything that she has done has made them interested. Um, That's incredible. Yeah. So in her lifetime, she sold nearly 200 of Vincent's paintings. Um, Wow. It's crazy too. Cause like when I think of that retrospective, it's like, you'll never see that many Vincent Van Gogh paintings in one room again. No. Because they all get broken mm-hmm. up and put into other places. But, like, that must have been so beautiful to see together, you know, as a collection. Yeah. Oh, God, I bet it was absolutely stunning. So she had pieces, and there's still a core piece. Like, the the family and her son, Vincent, and then it's it's continued through the family. But... She sets up a core of paintings that she does not want sold. Um, She wants Mm. them kept in the family. And that's the basis of what starts the Van Gogh Museum eventually. Um, Which her son, Vincent, was one of the founders of the Van Gogh Museum. Oh, wow. Um, So they all take up this mantle. Like She she remarried after Teo's death. Mm -hmm. But she continued to keep this promise to Teo that she would take care of his brother. Um, it's so beautiful. It's just so beautiful. Uh, so the rest of the family has really taken up this mantle as well. And they all are involved, um, or this core group is involved in keeping his name alive. Um, some of the pieces are the sunflowers and I don't know if you guys are familiar with Van Gogh's sunflowers the way he painted those it is so thick on the canvas Mm -hmm. and there's so much texture to the sunflowers it's just yeah the pieces are so beautiful he uses just yellows and browns and it just it looks like a sunset on the canvas it's so gorgeous is um, he using a palette knife for a lot of his work or just like yeah, real I think thick so. brushes? Okay. I'm pretty sure he used a palette knife. But one of the pieces that she didn't want to part with was the sunflowers. And so she had kept them. And in 1924, she sold the sunflower, the piece she did not want to part with to the National Gallery in London. And she wrote to the director of the gallery, it is a sacrifice for the sake of Vincent's glory. So, um, cause also you were saying she, it was a sacrifice for his glory. She didn't want to sell it, but she sold it because like she respected the museum that much and knew like that many people would see it there. Yes. She knew that oh, getting wow. the sunflowers cause the national gallery gallery in London, they had been trying to get these pieces from her. They wanted the sunflowers. Um, 
and she had not she was like i can't i can't sell this and that raiders of the lost art episode they really kind of pin that sale as like the the final act of service that she does for vincent and this final like this is the reason now you have this piece in the gallery in london and that is one of the largest collections of art in the world. It is one of the most famous museums. Um, and at that point, she's then, like 60, right? I mean, she's like older, kind of starting to retire a little bit. Well, so she sells that in 1924 and then she passes away in 1925. Oh it, my is, God. it is immediate. Oh, God. It's like she sold a piece of her heart. That's kind of what it feels like. And just the 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 letter that she wrote to the director, it's it's longer than this line, but I think that this line really sums up how she feels about this painting and how she mm-hmm. felt about Vincent and Teo. Just that it is a sacrifice for the sake of Vincent's glory. Um and I think that that really kind of sums up the work that she did with her life was in constant striving to uplift her hus- her her husband's brother. Because mm-hmm. do you think that she knew she was going to pass soon and she wanted that one painting to kind of... There's a potential. She kind of like was relinquishing that to the masses. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of what the the episode uh, from Raiders of the Lost Art. That's kind of what they posit like allude to. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Is that this was like her final sacrifice, her final move to better Vincent's right. name, um, and just to continue to take care of him. And it is really that, but like you said, she like remarried, found you know new love, all of these other things, and still managed to make this specifically her life's work. Like, yeah, technically she dated the dude for three years. Like, I understand having a great love, but wow, like, yeah, no, and that's part of what makes it crazier is that she was only married to Teo for two years before he passed away and then she spends the rest of her life continuing to to champion the brother that he loved and just that is such a beautiful and tender act of service Mm -hmm. like to have someone do you know she also believed in his art that much like did she ever talk about I the think art she, itself or was yeah, it all for I think Vincent that for she no I think she absolutely believes that he is he was a genius and that his work deserved mm-hmm. to be championed the way that it did but you would have to right I mean to devote your yeah, whole you, life absolutely no but it's just it's it's one of those stories where if only we could all be held so softly after we pass <laughs> I just think that that is such a beautiful uh story or before before, yeah I was gonna (laughs) say like I have tenderly (laughs) nursed many a partner through their financial difficulties to blossom into the beautiful artistic butterflies that they want to be but have never received the same sort of compassion and tenderness it would be nice you know 
Uh, it totally exists. <laughs> you can definitely be in a symbiotic relationship with a creative who you can kind of at least voice those concerns to and have someone around that believes in you that much when you definitely aren't going to feel that way consistently about yourself and kind of do that for each other. Yeah. It's possible. Um, But I think even it, like you were saying, Jordan, you're also pushing through possibly someone just being fighting a bunch of other battles inside their head while they're going through the regular artist shit. So I feel better knowing, knowing the other things about Vincent in terms of like you were saying, Jordan, that he wasn't accepted, that he at least had like a family member that before he was gone was, you know what I mean? There for him on that level. That's exactly, I think the point that it, it really touches me is that, you know, he spends his life being an outsider and struggling with mental illness and, and just not really Mm -hmm. being accepted anywhere. And then he's Mm -hmm. got Teo, who is such a devoted and loving brother who spends his life taking care of Vincent. And then when Teo's gone, for Joanna to then take up that mantle and I'm sure that she helped while Vincent was alive, but just there's yeah. no one that she is accountable to at this point to yeah. continue to champion Nobody would Vincent. know if she was just like, dude, I'm going to take like half this stuff because these crates are out of control and I have an infant with me. And right? also I'm a little itchy. Like <laughs> Nobody would have faulted her. Especially because everyone around her in Paris was saying, just get rid of it. Just get rid of the paintings. Yeah. And yeah. the fact that she fought that instead and was like, no, I'm I'm taking care of him. But that does kind of sometimes fuel you even more when you're doing something like that. It just proves so much why you need to be the one to do it because no one else around you can see why this matters. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like even more so I have to protect this because none of these other artists are or creatives or people who are in Paris and my friends, like whatever your circle is, is not seeing the value that like I 100% believe is here. Yeah. And that kind of being like, oh, I 100% have to champion for this because nobody else cares. Everyone that cared about this is dead. So like the thing like you're saying of like, this would die with me. So I can't let it. I also think that there's something tender too in the way that like, yes she believes in vincent but then in a way like it becomes the symbiotic relationship where like vincent is also supporting her financially and helping her like be a single mother and so like yes. in a way like after his death vincent took care of them as well yes wow so like there's something yeah. beautiful about that too absolutely especially it's i'm glad that you brought that up because it is so it just makes me feel so uh, warm hearted because a lot of Vincent's letters to Teo, he is consistently asking, how can I be of service in this world? What can I do to be of service in this world? And so just knowing that, you know, Teo passes and then Johanna and the baby are by themselves. And now she's a single mother trying to raise an infant. And, Vincent is able to 
be of service to her, even if he doesn't know. Yeah. I think that definitely is even in terms of depression and other things that you can think to not always be able to see how much good someone can do. Yes. Yeah. And that kind of being full circle on proving how worthwhile like he and his art were and not just monetarily but also everyone that it touched afterwards because she did the work that she did like getting as many eyes on it as she did kind of expanded that service like who knows how many fold yeah Yeah. but yeah Andrea that's awesome yeah (laughs) that's like an awesome observation was is that the whole episode Jordan it is yeah that was kind of all that I uh that was that was so perfect it was so beautiful and sweet and tender and I loved every second of it and I didn't know any of that stuff about like plain air paintings that was so cool oh I'm so glad yeah no these these women are pretty close to my heart and I'm yeah I'm and it is kind of that- the duality of women where you have this like nurturing relentlessly sacrificing woman and then like the devil wears Prada shows up at the end and is like got it like <laughs> and passes the torch I love that <laughs> that's really cool Thanks Jordan. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. Oh, thank you guys. <laughs> this you did such a good job. I love that story and like, I don't know. Thank you. That was so great. That was such like a tender thing yeah. to be like, you know, sometimes I feel like the show is very much me like yelling. So I just it's nice to have an episode that's just like and then these people just loved and supported each other and so like that's pretty <laughs> great. I think that is something that you can come to realize and maybe the picks that you and Jordan make because Andrea's <laughs> like, check out this fucking asshole. And Jordan's like, I just wanted to show a small part of the world where an artist that was really sad got like their moment in the sun. Like that's where your picks it. are taking you. I so um, thank you so much for both of you balancing out the duality of this podcast. Um, and thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Pavon on Guard. Yeah. Uh, if you like uh, us and want to follow us, we have an Instagram and a Twitter and a Facebook group. Um, the Twitter and the Instagram is P O D V A N T G A R D E. And I'm pretty sure you could like, type that into facebook is it like Pavantgarde podcast what is it andrea uh, it's a group so it's just Pavantgarde is the whole okay name. so yeah. if you just search the Pavantgarde group you'll see the orange and yellow logo but yeah that's us and if you like me katrina as an individual you can follow me at katrina savad um s-i-v-a-d um and that's just davis backwards on all of the stuff hell yeah dude And if you want bonus episodes, we have one up right now and we're planning on getting some more. Uh, You can support us at Patreon, Podvantgarde, or it's patreon.com slash Podvantgarde. And we uh, appreciate you. Did you already say the email, Katrina? No, I didn't. I didn't say that. Okay, email. yeah. If you guys have any like cool art history news that you find and you want to send us, you can email it to podvantgard at gmail.com or you can send us a message in the Facebook group. 
all those things would be cool uh we'd love to hear from you and if you like the show please rate and review us and subscribe that would be super awesome oh yeah um also if you like me as a person or not that's fine too just it's whatever uh you can follow me <laughs> on instagram at andrea gazetta uh i also have a website andreagazetta.com and i have some cool like prints and art and cool things in there that you can check out and uh yeah i also have a patreon if you want exclusive stickers and chances to win original paintings that would be sweet uh that's patreon.com slash andrea gazetta and I am Jordan Lee Williams. I am on Instagram at the Goonie Bird. Uh, I am also Goonie Bird Crafts. If you want anything, uh, you know, that your grandma would have made in like 1911. That's kind of <laughs> my deal. Uh, I'm doing a deep dive into uh, antique crocheting right now. Hell and so yeah. I'm hoping to get some stuff posted about that. Uh, <laughs> um, I have an Etsy, Gooniebird Crafts, and I am in the Facebook group now on Pub Hell Card. yeah. Yay. Also, Jordan could barely contain her excitement through a sentence about crochet. Like she almost <laughs> exploded. Like you told her Santa was real. Like, oh, crocheting. <laughs> oh, I found some uh, patterns from Victorian England uh, that I've been trying to translate into modern crochet terms. Uh, so I yeah. heard Paige do a off a side about Scandinavian ribbon earlier this week. Oh and God. I was like, yeah, you y'all really need to talk more. Cause I was like, what is going on? <laughs> Story checks out. I love it. But yeah, check out Jordan's Etsy store because I got a really cool gift that I can't disclose in case someone listens to this podcast, but she's got good giftables on there. Hell yeah, dude. Oh, thank you. And yeah, so yeah, that's our episode. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Or he, I always do this. Ah, <laughs> uh, thank you for listening. Bye. We love bye. you. We love you. Bye. bye. Hey guys, Andrea here. Um, I'm asking for your help a little bit today because Jordan, Katrina, and I are all comedians and artists who don't have any experience editing sound. And because this is a sound-based medium, we have asked an editor to help us with our episodes. Um, we had a few issues early on with some of the early recordings and we're working on getting those sorted out. Um, and... Part of that is just having an audio engineer. So in order to be able to actually pay him and pay him a fair rate, uh, we're asking for your help. We've set up a Patreon, patreon.com slash podvantgarde. And our goal is that we can pay him not from our own pockets, but from the resources of the show itself, which means we need your help. Um we're also planning on starting to release bonus episodes. We'll start with one a month. Um, and as that Patreon rate increases, we'd like to eventually expand that to a bonus episode every week. And the bonus episodes will be more, um, a little bit more loose fit. We'll be covering 
art uh like current events and weird things that happen because there's a lot of like weird stuff going on in the art world right now um especially around nfts especially around ai and i think it's really interesting and worth talking about but we just need to be able to pay someone to edit that bonus content um i would also say that in terms of the time cost you know katrina jordan and i all are supporting ourselves outside of this show this show takes a lot of time i'm probably spending at least three days a week with every episode just researching we're buying books um katrina's editing the time codes she's building our website she's doing all our social media jordan is also researching her own episodes and my goal for the patreon is just that it can become something that you know we're not looking to get rich i don't think that's ever been our goal i don't think we ever think that could be our goal but what i'd like to be able to happen eventually is that the patreon can become a way for us to just pay ourselves a living wage for the time that we invest into this show. My experience uh, with Cult Podcast um, is that it's really hard to make a show every single week and not have other financial resources. So what I want is that this Patreon can eventually become a financial resource for us. It can help us support ourselves and it can help us to continue putting the show out so that we don't get burnt out and want to pull our hair out. Um, we love you so much and we think that the show is really important. I personally think that we need more podcasts that cover history and art history from a feminist, anti-colonial queer perspective and that's where we're coming from as artists and as art historians and comedians we love you we love this show thank you so much for supporting it that's again at patreon.com slash and thanks guys <laughs>